Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. Welcome to uh, Parsha Matot and Mase, the only double Parsha this entire year in the diaspora. So, Avi, I know we talked about why we have a double Parsha, because we have to catch up with Eretz Yisrael. However, why is this Parsha, or this Parshiot, I should say, the ones that get that double Parsha? So the interesting thing is that it actually has nothing to do with the parshiot. It has to do with the fact that this is the last opportunity to have a set of double parshiot before Rosh Hashanah. And therefore, this is our last chance to catch up. And so the, the calendar has dictated that this will be the only double parsha of the year. And that's, again, as you mentioned, so that we can catch up with the Torah reading in the land of Israel. Uh, and so that's where we are, and we're going to jump right in with questions. So Avi, very, very beginning of Parsha Matos, we see that we're discussing about a, a woman either in the home of her father or in the home of her husband, and if she makes a vow, whether or not uh, it stands based on if her father says something, if her husband says something. My specific question is, the Torah repeats itself twice about a woman in her husband's home and whether or not there's anything that the husband does to either uh, speak out against her oath or not. Why this repetition? Torah doesn't repeat itself for no reason. So I'd like to suggest that this particular introduction to the Parsha is one of the great classic examples of the Torah being legalistic. And in fact, if we were to look at the Gemara, the Gemara really would love the way it handles this topic because if you look at it, right, it goes through, okay, if a male makes an oath, what are the laws, right? If he makes an oath, he has to follow through on it. Great. If a woman who is living in her father's house makes an oath, well, the father can cancel it out. Ah, but what happens if that woman started off in her father's house and then moved to her husband's house? 
Well, then the husband can cancel it out on the day he finds out about it. Okay, well, what if she is not married? If she was single and, and above uh, the age of majority, or if she was uh, widowed, well, then her, her vow counts because she is responsible for herself. Ah, but what if she was single or widowed and then married? So her husband said, we say, then her husband can cancel out her oath. And so while the Torah may seem to be repeating itself, really it's sort of running through every permutation of what family life might be like and responding to, well, what would happen in this scenario? Well, what would happen in that scenario? Right? And being very complete, which sometimes we might feel that the Torah doesn't do. Sometimes the Torah throws out general rules, um, right, and, and expects us to interpret it, and the rabbis do. But in this particular case, we're being very specific about oaths that are made and whether somebody is being held responsible for them or not based on their age, based upon their living condition, based upon... Um, who might have the right to cancel out an oath for them. So, Avi, I'm going to push back just a little bit, um, because maybe you can go a little bit further and explain to us a little bit about when one does make an oath, how one can cancel or disavow that vow. Um, and, and for sure more specific than just the, we do this before Yom Kippur. Sure. So there are actually two different kinds of oaths or vows that can be made. There is the conscious vow, right? Um, and, and that is a very serious statement made by a person, often in court, but in this case it is a person taking a, uh, a, a promise upon themselves, usually to do something or to not do something, um, and, and the rabbis give all sorts of examples. So if somebody says, I swear that I will not eat at so-and-so's house, or I swear that I will uh, you know, bring uh, this amount of money to the Beit HaMikdash or to the shul, right, as a donation. Um, and so that's a conscious oath that somebody makes. And then for whatever reason, they find that they are unable to keep that oath. And so the question is, well, what do they do? Well, they break their oath, and then in the days of the Beit HaMikdash, they would be responsible for bringing a karban, and, um, and asking God for forgiveness for not keeping that oath that used God's name, right? Again, going back to the Ten Commandments, you should not use God's name in vain. So you've made this oath in God's name. Today, we're less likely to do that. We're more likely to do the unconscious oath. And that comes under the title of chazaka. Chazaka means that you've built up a habit. Sometimes it's a religious habit. Sometimes it's a human habit. But we say, there are certain things, and this is the way I do them, consciously, subconsciously. So it could be the way I daven. It could be where I sit in shul. It could be any number of things, but this is the way I do things. And then, if you want to change it, we have to do what's called hatarat nidarim, which is to say, I am 
consciously removing the oath that was in place. And the way that this is done is that one goes before the a, a tribunal of um, three, ideally scholars, but it can be three people uh, who are male over the age of bar mitzvah, and they say, right, this is the Beit Din, and, and I made this promise, and I would like to be released from this promise. And the Beit Din has the power to release them from that promise, especially from these subconscious or unconscious promises that they've made. And what ends up happening is that these, um, these habits that we've built up, sometimes over the course of a year, often can get in our way as we get close to Yom Kippur. And this is the Hatarat Nidarim that you were referring to, which is that many have a custom of, of doing Hatarat Nidarim, of canceling out their, their unconscious vows, of Yom Kippur to say, if I have picked up any of these bad habits, I would like them to be wiped from my slate so that I can have this year be fresh and not be bound to these habits. And in these cases, we're, we're really trying to remove our negative uh, habits rather than our, our positive ones. Um, although there are cases where, uh, for instance, Let's say you have uh, a man and a woman who are getting married. One of them is of Sephardic descent. One of them is of Ashkenazic descent. Well, living in the same house, it makes sense for them to say they are going to have one set of, um, of minhagim, of customs. And so, in theory, right, one of them should do hatarat nidarim to say that they are going to change their custom from what it was to their partners. It is often the woman whose custom then follows the husband's. Um, but there have been cases where families have discussed and decided that it will be a hybrid, and so both people have to do it. That's another way that this comes into play. So Akiva when the people go and fight Midian, they are told to go to war. And yet, when they return, they take captives, and they bring back all of these items that they found. Many are worth a great deal of money, and that makes sense. But it sort of raised the question for me, why do we collect souvenirs? And here the Jewish people seem to be partially collecting wealth, but partially collecting souvenirs of their war. And I was hoping you could speak to that a little bit. So as we've talked about before, we are a species that is very much, we need to see something, we need to be tangible. And this is true for, for uh, the spoils of war and the memories of war, really probably as much as it is for any of the other things we discussed. And so in this particular case, A, 
we have people collecting souvenirs, as you put it. I do think that it's a very separate thing to kind of go over the, well, what about the financially valuable items? That's probably more of a simple, they're valuable. And so people took them because they were valuable uh, financially. It's oftentimes I think the, the base piece of a souvenir is the idea of it being a memorabilia and I an opportunity to have a a little a talisman, a something that will will bring someone back to the place and and bring up the memory. Sometimes we have little trinkets that are what we would call a lovely. And so that's like the the blankie as a baby or the stuffed animal, something that brings us comfort and brings us uh, a sense of security. As we age, we, we don't necessarily have our blankie anymore. We don't necessarily have our stuffed animal anymore. But we have other things that remind us. Uh, sometimes people call them warm fuzzies, right? Something where, oh, this reminded me of. I can only remember when. And, and oftentimes this can be something that isn't tangible, it's an intangible, so, so a sound or a smell or a visualization, an experience that brings you back to a happy time in your life. Unfortunately, many of the people I work with also have times and things that bring them back to not positive things in their life. It's an entirely different conversation, entirely different discussion. But if anyone brought back a souvenir of something that perhaps was not of monetary value, it may have been because it reminded them and or they wanted it to remind them of. Um, and that could be a positive or a negative, depending. But I think, in general, that whole idea of a tangible item to remember the intangible times is exactly why we have souvenirs. And of course we know that any of us who have been to any theme parks, right, the souvenirs that we get are often garbage. They You buy them and they break within 15 minutes, which really is the antithesis of the idea of what a souvenir should be. Um, pictures, a shell from the beach, something that isn't going to break, isn't going to be destroyed so easily, is really what a souvenir would be. And again, that's what I would say, other than the obvious monetary value. So Akiva, one of the things we see in Parshas Matos is that the children of Ruvain and God and half of Menashe come and say they would like to live in the land of Midian that was just outside the land of Israel because they see that it is green and beautiful pastures and it's great for their business of raising sheep. And Moshe certainly doesn't seem to be open to this idea until they clarify for him 
that they are willing to go and fight for the land of Israel. He thinks they are trying to uh, weasel out of, right, or, or, or find a way to get out of fighting for the land of Israel, that they've already done their fair share of fighting. But they say, no, 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 not only are they willing to, to go and fight, they'll be at the front lines. All they want to do first is build towns and, and, uh, and, and places to keep their families and their animals. Talk to us a little bit about compromise. Talk to us a little bit about listening. Talk to us a little bit about leadership and the role that listening and compromise play in leadership, where maybe Moshe could have been a better listener, even though he does eventually agree and, and set up a, an agreement with them. Listening is huge, right? Um, and that gets back into that question in part of hearing versus listening. I hear what you say, but am I listening? Listening requires interpretation. Listening requires the opportunity to take in what someone is saying, process it through, and not just hear their words, but consider the meaning of those words. And, and in some ways, listening also includes the nonverbal. So, you know, when, theoretically, we weren't there, uh, but when these uh, leaders of the tribes came and spoke to Moshe, we don't know what the body language was. We don't know what the nonverbal cues were. For sure there were, because that's majority of our communication. But for all we know, they may have been saying with nonverbal cues, we're here, we're invested, we wanna we wanna participate, we don't want to separate ourselves from the community, but we do want this land. It's also possible that they could have said with body language, well, let's see what he says. Let's, let's go from there. And then when Moshe gets upset, they immediately say, no, 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 no. We were not talking about not helping, right? We don't know that. Uh, similarly, we also don't know, being how Moshe was, by this time, one can only imagine how fed up as a leader he was, uh, thinking to himself, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to continue to have these same arguments over and over again. Right. This could this the the presentation that they originally give is very similar to what is said immediately after the spies returned. Right. To say, hey, maybe we don't want to go into the land of Israel. So it, it, it's understandable that he would have been very concerned by this idea. Right. And. So we don't know exactly all those different pieces. However, what we do know is any one of us who jumps to conclusions is often wanting for a couple of steps back after they jump to those conclusions. And in this case, probably no different. Because at the end of the day, these tribesmen said, no, no, we want to participate, we want to help, we want to be part of the community, we just like this part of the land better. And 
I think that we kind of hear the same language throughout that Moshe's not thrilled. Now, what's interesting, and I would ask you to comment at some point, Avi, when when I'm done going over the answers to your questions, is we don't really seem to get a stake from Hashem as far as this goes. Um, because I think that it's it's very paramount to consider the fact that it seems as if this is directly a response only from Moshe. And while we know that Moshe is obviously very important, he's a good leader, he, so on and so forth, he usually doesn't do things and, and make statements completely with autonomy. So I want to jump back to that afterwards. Uh, suffice it to say, listening is huge. Compromise. Compromise is not such that every party ends up unhappy uh, or every party un- ends up slightly unhappy. But compromise is important, and compromise is a way that we take two individuals who are just that, individuals, and have their own ideas, and allow them to coexist. So compromise is huge, and compromise, sometimes we think, again, well, you like this, I like this, let's just both be unhappy slightly by doing this. No. It could be as simple as, I don't agree with this part, but... I will allow for that because you will allow for this, and so on and so forth. That's perfectly reasonable as far as compromise goes. Now, what does that have to do with being a good leader? Well, a good leader needs to listen. A good leader needs to take into account what are the masses saying, what are those in their cabinet saying, uh, and I don't mean just a cabinet as, as we know it from a political standpoint, but, but your trusted advisors. What are those who you want to hear have to say saying? And again, listening and compromising and having that ability, that flexibility to process what someone is saying and figure out a solution is key. So, yeah, I think that leadership needs to know how to listen. Leadership must know how to compromise, especially when dealing with other leaders. And, in general, listening is not simple. It is not simply hearing what someone is saying. It is processing the entire piece of communication. So, with that being the answer, Avi, I'm going to toss back at you. Where is Hashem and his opinion, for lack of a better word, on on this matter, because we seem to only hear from Moshe. So, it doesn't seem to appear here, but shortly we're going to learn about the cities of refuge. And we see that when the cities of refuge are set up, three are set up inside the land of Israel, and three are set up outside of the land of Israel. And so I think, and this can be a, a a statement in and of itself. It seems that Hashem recognizes that people will be living outside of the land of Israel and staying Jewish. Um, and so while Israel is certainly our homeland and, and a place that many of us strive to be, right? it is not necessary to live in Israel 
to be Jewish, um, which is a little bit different than than you know what most people think. I think there are people who believe that there are many who believe that Judaism is a just is just simply a religion, or that it's a nationality, or that it's but it's really much deeper than that, right? Judaism is a peoplehood that includes both national and religious components, which is something that I don't know that we find in a lot of other countries today or a lot of other peoplehoods. Um, and so that really takes us down the path of Hashem saying, yes, right? you can be part of my people even if you don't live in the land of Israel. So Avi, I appreciate that answer. The next piece, which is a wonderful and natural transition into discussing Parshat Maaseh, is after the recount of all the different travels uh, in the abridged version, um, we then have very clear laid out landmarks of what defines Eretz Yisrael. And this is not what our current borders are in Eretz Yisrael. And so not only would I appreciate your take on on how those differ and, and what we should say about that, if we should say, but I'm going to throw in the additional piece of a lot of what exists and a lot of, even in previous what existed, was... In part, why don't we take into account what was fairly won in the spoils of war? Because, to my knowledge, most other countries take that into account. They get their landmarks based off of what they conquered or what they lost. And yet, here we are with Eretz Yisrael having very clear dictated landmarks by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and it doesn't include that which was the spoils of war. So the only piece that I'll disagree with is these are not yet the spoils of war. These are going to be the spoils of war, but it doesn't, you're correct, in that it doesn't include the previous spoils of war, the ones they've already gotten, like the lands from Midian. And I think that Again, context here is really important, right? We're talking about that they are about to go to war to take the land of Israel, and that has two implications. One is inheritance. In other words, we're going to take this land and divide it between the 12 tribes, and all of that is going to be inheritable by those who fought and their children. And in fact, we see, right, we recall Benot Slavchad from this past week's Parsha where they said, we're all girls and we still want to inherit and, and Moshe and Hashem um, say, sure, and they figure that out. They're mentioned here. Um, so that's this, all of this land that is coming in is about who's going to inherit. 
The other piece that's important is when we're talking about mitzvot tluyot ba'aretz, those mitzvot that can only be done in the land of Israel. And so you need specific borders in order to say, these are the things you must do when you're in Israel. So this year has been a Shemitah year. And that means things grow wild. And I had phenomenal opportunity to spend some time in Israel. And one of the things you see is that not only is it the, the fruit-bearing plants and the food-bearing plants, but it's all plants. So people don't cut the flowers that are growing in their front yard. People don't cut down, the, the cities don't go through and trim the trees for this year. And you can do that for a year. You can let things grow a little bit more wild, and it's, it's really interesting to see and interesting to, to be a part of. And the amazing way that the land and the earth can sort of take over things. But we don't have that here. We don't have the requirement outside of the land of Israel to let things grow and to only eat produce from before the Shemitah year, and etc., etc. It's a mitzvah that's only applicable inside of Eretz Israel. And so if that's going to be the case, you need to know where those borders are. And even to this day, there are questions and debates about whether the land that goes beyond the biblical description of Eretz Israel should then be considered part of these mitzvot luyot ba'aretz. So if there's food that grows in Eilat, right, is that part of Eretz Israel, or does Shemitah not apply in Eilat? So the vast majority of, of authorities have said, no. These are the minimum requirements that Hashem gave us. This is what they were going to control in the times of the Torah, times of the Navi. But there will be times where Eretz Israel may get larger and where it may get smaller. And that's why it gives us these specific uh, dimensions that these are the pieces that will always be a part of Eretz Israel and will be handed down from generation to generation, as well as the idea that this is where those mitzvot are required to be. So Akiva, one of the things that I find fascinating here at the end of Masse is the Torah actually has to give people permission to marry other Jewish people from another tribe, right? So this is intra-Jewish marriage versus intermarriage of different uh, shvatim, of different tribes. And so it reminds me a little bit, actually a, a good amount, of you know how sometimes we are separate states in the United States, and sometimes we are one country. And so here, too, it seems that we have lost something because we are sometimes 
12 tribes, and we're sometimes one Jewish people. And today, we're definitely trying to lean more on the one Jewish people piece, but I'm hoping you might be able to give us some insight into that idea of patriotism for one's tribe versus patriotism for being a whole Jewish people and how those might um, complement each other. So when we're considering about the the tribes versus the one nation, I'm going to presume that it's important to remember the fact that each individual tribe did have their own customs and their own background and their own pieces of what they did and did not do. You mentioned earlier about the difference between uh, Ashkenaz and Sephardim. Just the sheer fact that there are different minhagim. And, and I'm sure that that is also true, or was true rather, amongst the tribes. I say was because most of the tribes have been lost. And it's hard to say. Because between that and the fact that we don't necessarily identify as much as, well, I'm part of this tribe, um, there's been a blending. But here's the thing, and that's exactly what it is. There are wonderful uniquenesses of, I'm part of this tribe, I'm part of that tribe. Uh, we saw this when when we discovered the Ethiopian Jewry, where... There are all sorts of interesting things that they do that we can look at and we can say, wow, that's fascinating. Tell us more. Let us learn about what it is that you do. And we don't want to necessarily get rid of that at the same time. We were even more excited by the fact that we could connect with a group of people that we never thought we would have because, hey, they have a Torah. And they believe what we believe. There might be slight differences. But they believe what we believe. And there is a connection. And the fact that we are one people allows us to remember that there's a connection. And so even if we disagree because you, and I don't mean you personally, Avi, but you hold that because this was made off of dairy, on dairy equipment, even though it has no dairy ingredients, counts as this, versus someone who says, no, no, it's okay, there's no dairy in this, so that, and, and I'm just picking that example because of different things that you and I have discussed before, just in our own personal conversations. Um, the fact is, is that we're having a conversation about something that overarchingly is within us as a group, us as a nation, and even if we have slight differences, right? Sfarni meat rice on Pesach. We don't. We uh, Ashkenazim. I speak for you as an Ashkenazi as well as myself. But at the same time, yeah, we have to be mindful of that because if we're going to eat at someone who is uh, a Sephardi, we need to know those things. However, it doesn't mean that they're doing something wrong, and it doesn't mean that there's something different 
as a base piece. And so I think that's the big thing to remember is that it's great to both have your identification as a people and at the same time you can say in this house we do this. And this is basically a larger version of that. And in some ways it's been decreased. In other ways it's been magnified. And as long as we're using that to a positive as opposed to a detriment, which I think is really how we end the Parsha, right? We end it with absolutely commingle. Don't worry about the little stuff. Don't worry about the land and the inheritance. That will be fine. We're taught absolutely commingle. And I think that is the big thing to remember. And for many of us who have ever uh, combined two families together, that is the lesson. Don't worry about the little stuff. The big stuff are you people who can unite. Can you create a common existence? That's the most important piece. So here's a great question for your Shabbos table. I'm sure that, especially nowadays, knowing that we don't tend to marry within the same bloodlines, everybody has their own different customs, their own different backgrounds. So where have you, in your relationships, come to a compromise how have you balanced the fact that you theoretically are coming from not different tribes, but different homes? And what have you created as your own minhagim for your own family? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.